Let's talk about sex. Yeah, let, let's, let's talk about sex. Let's talk about gender. About six months ago, Chaplain Lowe asked Dr. Kapik and me if we might consider organizing our next faculty chapel series around the subject of human sexuality and gender. That sounds easy enough, <laughs> said Kapik. <laughs> no problem. As we thought about it, we couldn't imagine any real controversies or conflicts related to this topic at all or the slightest possibility of offending anyone or raising objections of any kind. Perfect for a nice, stress-free series of faculty talks, don't you think? So of course, being the geniuses that we are, Kapik and I said, sure, let's talk about sex. Let's talk about gender. Our physical bodies, men and women, male and female, boys and girls, guys and dolls, husbands and wives, sexual pleasure, sexual promiscuity, sexual harassment, sexual assault, power. Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Bill Hybels. Boys will be boys, hashtag me too. Homosexual, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, transsexual, queer, asexual, Christian manhood, Christian womanhood, headship, ordination elders, deacons, women in positions of leadership and authority, women on the board of Covenant College. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about gender. I've got to be real honest with you here. I kind of don't want to talk about sex. <laughs> and a big part of me would rather us avoid talking about gender, too. It's uncomfortable. It generates conflict and raises issues that many find shocking and even taboo. And on top of all that, it can be more than a little embarrassing, bringing up questions usually shunned in polite company. As a ruling elder in the PCA and a faculty member at Covenant College, I have to say that part of me fears that we might say things here that are going to get us into trouble. Perhaps someone will step over the line and even get themselves fired. These are my irrational worries. I confess. The fact is, talk of sexuality divides us. Men versus women. Older generations versus younger. Parents versus children. Conservatives versus liberals. Traditionalists versus justice-minded progressives. Democrats versus Republicans. The sexually struggling versus the sexually normative. Yeah, I guess you can see why I think we might be better off tackling safer topics. A good old-fashioned lecture on Abraham Kuyper, anyone? <laughs> but in my experience, Covenant College has never been the sort of place that runs away from challenging topics simply because they're challenging, even controversial and uncomfortable ones. Kapik and I agreed to invite the faculty to tackle this series in part because we recognize the obvious current relevance of these subjects at this critical moment in history. We live in an age that is simultaneously obsessed with and terrified by issues of human sexuality and gender. And most of what we get within the broader world seems to verge on rage and hysteria. Within this community, we believe there's a deep hunger for thoughtful conversations about these topics, the cultural meanings they raise, and the conflicts they provoke. 
We sense an urgency here to explore how Christian faithfulness in the areas of sexuality and gender might look within our churches, among our friendships, within our marriages and our places of employment. How do we navigate the minefield of sexual and gender-based rules in a culture where those rules seem to be always changing? What does it mean for us to act with compassion and genuine love toward our sexually struggling brothers and sisters? What are we uh, and what are we able to and not able to say to one another as we interact with our neighbors in this brave new world of gender politics? What are women students supposed to make of their experiences living within what seems in other ways to be loving Christian communities when hurtful misogyny and casual sexism is permitted to thrive without challenge in those same communities? How do we maintain fidelity to our churches and to God's word in a world where the convictions on sexuality and gender were often called to uphold as believers make us feel narrow-minded, heartless, and even cruel? What does it mean to think rightly and faithfully about our bodies, our words, our choices, our struggling friends and neighbors, our witness to a profoundly hurting world battered by sexual brokenness and confused by a hodgepodge of gender ideals? We understand. You have questions, many questions, and they aren't going away. So let's have a conversation, a community-wide conversation about sex. Let's talk about gender, workplace rights, reproductive rights, women's rights, human rights. What's right? Contraception, family planning, my body, my choice, feminists, feminazis, homemaking, dual-income families, the patriarchy, pink blankets, blue blankets, Mars, Venus, snips and snails and puppy dog tails, sugar and spice and everything nice, glass ceilings, the boys' club, girl power, lean in, family leave, the Graham rule, the Pence rule, cosmetic surgery, gender reassignment, nudity, nakedness, traditional gender roles, singleness, dating, premarital sex, date rape, no means no, affirmative consent, marriage, submission, barefoot and pregnant, equality, beauty, body image, body positivity, body shaming, feeling unsafe when going out for a run, Cat calls and lewd propositions, taking back the night, love, lust, masturbation, the female orgasm, the male gaze. Are those leggings pants? <laughs> Is it okay for me to compliment your outfit? Yes, we definitely need a conversation about sex. We need to talk about gender. There are many in our community who have painful past experiences of sexual abuse. Folks who are victims of sexual assault, rape, and molestation. Individuals who have watched their parents' marriages implode due to sexual infidelity. Many others of you who live single have current active and in some cases multi-partner sex lives. It's very likely that some of you here this morning are guilty of having committed sexual assault. Some of you struggle daily with sexual addictions and are living in the grip of pornography with all its private shame and self-loathing. Some of you men believe it's okay to mock others with sexual struggles, to speak to your friends about women's bodies in sexual ways, or to casually joke about conquest, rape, 
and assault. Still others are wrestling through very real, personal, and sometimes wholly private questions of sexual and gender dysphoria. Some experiencing same-sex attraction and chronic homosexual behavior. Others have begun to admit to yourselves that you have no real interest in sex at all. We need to talk about sex. We need to talk about gender. Are there thoughtful, faithful, biblical ways of thinking about these things? Does the gospel offer us more than simplistic bumper sticker slogans and truisms in answer to our very real questions and our deeply personal struggles? Some of you wonder. And I'm guessing that at least a few of you have even considered giving up on the whole Christian project because of your frustrations with the answers you've been given on these matters by well-meaning Christian pastors, teachers, parents, and other leaders. You may not always be satisfied with the ideas and answers we offer in this series, but we want to support a conversation that will honor your experiences, your questions, and your concerns as highly as it honors the gospel message in which we place our greatest hope. You won't be surprised when I remind you that Covenant College and the Presbyterian Church maintain a fairly strong set of convictions on certain issues related to human sexuality, the sanctity of life, and the covenant of marriage. We remain persuaded that these convictions reflect true, a true reading of God's word. As you probably know, the Bible isn't exactly silent on the subject. We take that seriously. It guides us toward thinking about norms, not just for a season, but for all time. Covenant's published statements about human sexuality are drawn from our best understanding of biblical teachings and are upheld by every member of our faculty. We intend to frame everything we want to say during these faculty lectures within the commitments reflected here. But I need you to hear me when I tell you that I don't believe these commitments are intended to put an end to our conversations about human sexuality and gender. I don't believe doing so offers a helpful or healthy way of talk, taking seriously the complex nature of either the Bible or these important topics. No, our commitment to Scripture instead provides us with a foundation and a dynamic starting point for our conversations, leaving ample space for them to develop. And so, Covenant College, let's talk about sex. Let's talk about gender. The lectures in this series are not intended to be Bible studies on the subject. Though we love the Bible and are committed to using it as a guide and as a framing for our analysis, we aren't a Bible college. And most of our faculty members, myself included, are not biblical scholars. We are, as you know, academically trained specialists covering a broad range of scholarly disciplines, which we approach from a Christian perspective. Like we do every day, in the classrooms across this campus. Our aim in this series is to bring our learning to bear on a diversity of issues related to these subjects. Our task, therefore, is to think about sex and gender through the lens of the liberal arts. Maleness and femaleness are foundational features of human existence, and as such, there are countless ways that gendered and sexual aspects of life weave themselves into virtually every nook and cranny of the academic conversation. From literature to biology, psychology to economics, linguistics to history, such discussions remind us that Christian inquiry is diverse, broad-ranging, shaped both by the arts and the sciences, 
and necessary for gaining a more comprehensive sense of our life together in God's world. In the few minutes I have remaining this morning, I'd like to explore some of what I've learned about sexuality and gender through my training as an historian. Over two generations, sexuality and gender have played an ever-growing role among historians as both a subject of study and as an interpretive framework. There's a lot in the academic discourse on gender that I wouldn't want to embrace or recommend to any of you. But it's important that you understand how much my mind and my moral imagination have been formed by learning to think historically about sexuality and gender. I'm grateful for my academic training and the ways it's helped me think more clearly and, Lord willing, to live more faithfully. Historical thinking at its best sharpens and clarifies the all-important theological insight that human beings live their lives in time and space-bound ways. We're time and space-bound creatures. And I believe we will not understand sexuality or gender until we begin to grasp them as time and bound factors, time and space bound factors. Historical thinking helps us do just that. To give you a sense of what I mean by understanding gender in time and space bound ways, let's take a, take a look at a few observations by social theorist Michael Kimmel. Kimmel argues that there are several unwritten rules today that govern how modern men think about and carry themselves in the world. Number one, no sissy stuff. Don't do anything that even hints at femininity. Number two, be a big wheel. Manhood is measured by the size of one's paycheck, status, power, car, and other things. Number three, be a sturdy oak. Don't show emotions of any kind. And number four, give them hell. Exude an aura of muscular aggression in everything you do. American men, according to Kimmel, live their lives at a conscious or uncon in unconscious, in conscious and unconscious ways, arriving, striving to conform themselves to these rules. In fact, Success in obeying these has become the measure of American manhood, at least according to Kimmel. And by the way, we could come up with an equally, uh, I think, interesting and probably hopefully compelling list uh, for American womanhood. There's a lot about these rules. Uh, there's a lot to be said about these rules. But for our purposes here, the question I'd like to ask, and the one that the historian in me is dying to ask, is where did they come from? An older, once predominant answer to this question uh, is found in an idea that I would call, or I'll call here, biological essentialism, which suggests that men and women operate in a fixed, non-negotiable order and live according to unchanging, self-evident rules rooted in the natural biological distinctions between male and female. An irreducible essence defines the center of one's identity as a human being, as a man, and as a woman. Men and women, in this way of thinking, have certain predetermined characteristics that are considered natural or God-given. 
The rules come from our biological selves. To transgress these rules and roles is not simply antisocial, it's unnatural. To use a more contemporary term, the essentialist might describe these features as hardwired. Over the past 50 years, many scholars have begun to question the viability of biological essentialism as a sufficient explanation for patterns of masculinity and femininity. First, anthropologists began to notice that rules like the ones Kimmel describes tend to vary based on one's social location, ethnic identity, class status, and membership in particular cultural or religious traditions. Rules and roles for manhood in an Irish Catholic family on the south side of Chicago will be different from those in a Hindu household in New Delhi, and yet again for a community of Ibu farmers in the southeast of Nigeria. Also, historians began to pay attention to the ways that the standards and practices, uh, roles and meanings of manhood and womanhood have changed over time. That is to say, along with notable historians Anthony Rotundo and Joan Wallach Scott, manhood and womanhood have histories. The rules and roles in families listed above will change at least somewhat to the, as those families move from location to location. A socio-historical analysis of masculinity and femininity thus began to undermine the essentialist account of these rules and roles. Conceptions of manhood and womanhood, rather than rooted in the eternal nature of things, were recognized as socio-historically specific and socio-historically conditioned. Led by sociologists Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman, scholars began to talk about the social construction of identity affirming the idea that humans are not merely biological animals whose cultural symbols and sense of meaning simply emerge from their nature. They're social creatures who act in groups and form social bonds, solve problems, develop plans, think, learn, and make culture. We humans receive our sense of what it is to be men and women within our social locations and from the historical times into which we were born. Now let me clarify that by acknowledging the social construction of identity, I'm in no way suggesting that biology or anatomy are inconsequential. Not at all. Biological features are real and deeply meaningful and always help to define fundamental differences between men and women. Biology absolutely matters. It always informs the ways societies define rules and roles. But while these psychological factors are necessary for shaping human life, they're not sufficient for explaining all or even most of the rules and roles that exist for masculinity and femininity. This brings us to a more basic question uh, that we should uh, consider. What's the difference between sex and gender? It's a huge question. The demise of biological essentialism has made it increasingly useful, even necessary, to create a distinction between the two, terms that today are often, uh, though wrongly, used interchangeably. Let me explain what historians and social theorists mean by each of these terms. Sex. Sex is a category that signifies the biological factors, anatomy, physiology, chromosomes, that separate men from women. Genitalia, body shape, relative body size and strength, reproductive fun functions, etc. Gender, a term that was once used exclusively in grammar, 
has come to signify the various meanings, roles, codes, and symbols that societies impose upon or associate with one another. Societies assign relatively arbitrary gendered meanings to things like clothing, household duties, colors, personal temperament, and occupations. Now, why does this matter? Well, making at least mental distinctions between those things that are imbued by nature and those that are historically and culturally conditioned is important for us to remember as we move forward in our conversations about human sexuality and gender. We don't make such distinctions. We run the risk of unwittingly baptizing certain culturally conceived, historically specific, and somewhat arbitrary rules as if they were God's design for manhood and womanhood. They very often aren't. I believe our confusion on this point has led to a significant form of theological laziness that gives the comparatively static notions of biological essences the task of defining our relationships and steering our social destinies. Consider these descriptions. Men. Strong, protective, hardy, analytical, objective, single-minded, natural leaders, tough and flexible, stoic, hard bargaining, and brave. Women, intuitive, soft, nurturing, passive, instinctual, emotional, easily distracted, relational, in need of protection. Hmm. How do you feel about these lists? It's one thing to recognize these associations as historically and culturally founded that have been imposed on men and women under particular locations and times, and even to be okay with tendencies toward any of them. But it's quite another to act as though they were part of the natural, God-given, God-ordained order of things that men and women are responsible to fulfill throughout their lives. Conservative Protestants, including many in the PCA, are especially apprehensive about the impact of the culture in conversations about gender and sexuality, noting how feminist concerns and questions have done much to set the terms for discussion. And this is no doubt true. But I'm at least as, con as concerned about the ways the culture shapes the discussion from the other side of the culture wars. While typically claiming a self-evident understanding of manhood and womanhood rooted in nature, we who take the Bible seriously have too easily embraced models of gender that are at least as culturally bound as those with whom we disagree. Okay. Observe the long and persistent history of anxiety among American Protestants over the stability of manhood and the purported feminization of the church. Since the last years of the 19th century, American Protestants have been fretting over the imminent demise of Christian civilization because of what they believed to be the shriveling, atrophied status of American manhood and the predominance of women's attitudes, sensibilities, and attendance within churches. 19th century Protestant men called for a revived, virile, muscular Christianity that would counteract the supposedly weak, highly sentimental, so-called feminine version of the faith that had been allowed to prosper. Protestant leaders as diverse as Billy Sunday and Bruce Barton called on Christian men to recover their primal male instincts, such as self-assertion, athleticism, and the art of warfare, instincts that had grown soft in the age of Victorian over-civilization. 
these men were especially worried by then-current depictions of Jesus that pictured him as the sweet Savior, soft, meek, gentle, peaceful, in a word, feminine. Historian Stephen Prothero notes that these critics reacted by envisioning a very different kind of Jesus. Quoting Prothero, these critics began to visualize Jesus, visualize Jesus as a young man glowing with physical strength and the joy of living. <laughs> he had a strong handshake and a good sense of humor. His muscles honed for years in a carpenter shop, stood out like knots of iron. His shoulders were as broad as his chest was deep. He was a man's man, physically attractive, <laughs> decisive, authoritative, and above all, courageous. <laughs> I'm sorry. Many contemporary evangelicals continue to promote the essentialist... I, I'm going to move this. Sorry. Yeah. All right. Sorry. This is distracting. Many contemporary evangelicals continue to promote the essentialist idea of virile, aggressive, and stoic manliness, insisting that these both reflect the rugged and daring character of Jesus Christ, while providing us with a crucial model of Christian discipleship for real men. Phil McCartney, Tony Evans, James Dobson, John Eldridge, all echo the laments from a century ago. The church, they argued, has become endangered due to its womanly character. And this generation of namby-pamby men has let it happen. They argue that we must somehow come alive to the manly character of Christian living by recognizing, as Eldridge put it, that Christian men have a battle to fight, a beauty to rescue, and an adventure to live. This extremely popular brand of thinking raises hardened and essentialist gender distinctions to a level of Christian orthodoxy. Doing so, I believe, harms our relationships with one another. Among many other problems, it presumes that there is little, if any, overlap between men and women and the way that they are called to live out the Christian experience. As conservative American Protestants ourselves, we need to confront our significant history and current tendency of forcing culturally bound notions of masculinity and femininity onto the Bible, onto the person of Jesus and on to one another. And in this light, I think we need to be especially honest and discerning about how much cultural baggage we bring with us when we speak of biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. Baptist theologian Molly T. Marshall speculates that a majority of Southern Baptists reject women's ordination not because they've been convinced by an exegetically and theologically coherent worldview, because they continue to hold fast to rigid notions of masculinity and femininity rooted in a deeply American culture. Now, whatever our stance on the role of women in the church, we must insist together that any arguments in either direction need to be rooted in a careful reading of the scriptures, while resisting as best we can the rules and roles of contemporary culture that powerfully shape our hearts and minds. This is a challenging task, but it's one we need to face together, head on. 
I hope that this brief exercise in thinking historically using some contemporary tools of social analysis has been helpful. And then it's also given you a small taste of the kinds of things that we as a faculty hope to do in our chapel series on sexuality and gender. I recognize that at the beginning half of this talk, I raised a lot of issues and questions, undoubtedly far more than we could ever cover in a single series. But I pray that you will not limit your discussions to what happens here, but will carry this conversation with you into the Great Hall, into your classrooms, into your residence halls, as you work together patiently and carefully to challenge one another to think hard and to live more faithful in very difficult times. It is a privilege for us to think through and live these questions alongside you as your teachers and as your friends. May God guide our conversations and may he help us together to become more like Jesus. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, you've made us in your image, male and female, and imbued us with the astonishing gifts of sexuality and gender. We confess that we have failed to appreciate the significance of these gifts and their power, and have too often turned both towards selfish and destructive ends. Help us, especially in this conversation we're beginning, to think carefully to speak gently, and to care for one another well. Be with my colleagues as they work on lectures of their own. Be with members of our student body who are wrestling with deep questions. And in all this, dear Lord, help us to honor you with our bodies and our minds. In the good name of Jesus, we pray.